Hello, I'm Annie Townend. Welcome to the Leaders in Conversation podcast, a series in which leaders and trailblazers share their inspirational personal stories, revealing the secrets of successful leadership. In this episode, I'm truly delighted to be in conversation with Jill Whitty Collins. Welcome, Jill. Thank you very much for having me, Annie. You're so welcome. You've written a truly inspirational book. I'm going to leave you to talk about the brilliant title. The book is about gender diversity and why tackling gender bias is so important for us all to succeed. Have you always been passionate about gender equality? And what and who made you aware of gender bias? I have absolutely not always been passionate about gender equality. I was always aware, um, obviously, of, of gender inequality and the issues, but I hadn't personally been affected by it for a very long time. It hadn't got in my way. And so it wasn't a top priority for me for a very long time. And I, I'm kind of um, ashamed to say that. Um, but um, I am now. And I, yeah, I've seen the light now, um, and so I'm trying to make up for make up for it and try to make a difference. Um, and really, what made me see the light was when I reached a senior vice president level at my previous company. And really, that was the first time in my life that I'd been in a male dominant culture. Not the first time in my career, but the first time in my life. I'd always been in a very gender balanced culture before, and suddenly landing, it was like landing on a different planet where looking around in meetings, 80% plus of the faces were men. And slowly realizing that that is a very, very different culture to be in and to operate in and to perform in. And that there are many, many things that happen, often unconscious, often unintended, that do hold women back and hold them back from performing. When I started to see that, I then became very, very interested in the issue, why it happens, and very passionate about fixing it. What were some of the things that you noticed, Jill, and how did that impact on you and your confidence? It took some time for me to notice. Because I'd never been in a male-dominant culture before, obviously I I noticed there aren't many women at this level, are there? Um, But it didn't bother me at first because I I didn't have anything to fear. I'd never had any reason to question that there would be an issue. Then I did start to notice and I started to notice it having an impact on me, but also the women around me. I was doing, saying, being as I'd always been and, and in a way that had always served me very, very well up to that point. And it just wasn't having the same impact. I could feel I wasn't being listened to in the same way the men were. I could see that my female colleagues weren't being listened to. Um, It was very polite. It it was in no way an impolite culture. But there was a polite listening to the women and true real interaction and engagement happening between the men. Um, And there were the cliches. I mean, we've all seen the cliches where... Women are interrupted. A man will hold court for 10 minutes and make five separate points. And a woman will get about 30 seconds before she gets interrupted. And the cliche of the woman suggests an idea within the first five minutes of a meeting, which is politely nodded to, ignored, and then regurgitated an hour later by a man and suddenly becomes the most genius 
thing ever said. All those cliches happened. Um, but it was, yeah, just that sense of the women in this room are not having the impact that the men are having. And it has absolutely nothing to do with a gap in ability or competence or knowledge. So I became fascinated by that and I started to become a real student of it, read lots of books, read lots of articles and realized this isn't about me. This isn't about these women. This isn't about this company, these men. This is happening to women everywhere, every country, every company, every organization. And that has to be wrong. As well as reading up and studying, becoming a student of gender bias and the cultural bias inherent in so many, many companies and countries, what did you start to do to tackle it within the company you were working in? I tried a few things. I created a women's hour group, which met every month and we had discussions and speakers and uh, it was fantastic. And there are a number of women to this day who still write to me and tell me how much they miss that and how much they benefited from that. And it was fantastic, but it's not enough because as you and I have discussed, women aren't going to fix this on their own. Men have got to get this, embrace it. Men are holding 90% plus of the leadership positions in the world. So by definition, if they don't buy into equality, nothing's going to change because they're making decisions about who gets jobs and promotions and all of those things. I did attempt to be a champion for gender equality. You know, I was a senior vice president. I believed that I'd reached a senior enough level to be able to speak up. And actually that was very interesting because if one particular very senior member of the company that I should back off the women's stuff because it didn't look good for me because I looked like part of the issue. And obviously I didn't back off, Annie. Um, <laughs> but I know that I'm not alone in that. And I, I know that many, many women throughout their careers, even at senior levels, have very much been given that impression that they need to distance themselves from the gender inequality issue and that is why I think a lot of women not all but uh, there are a lot of women at those senior levels who have what I call feminist phobia they absolutely avoid it as soon as the topic comes up they'll distance themselves they'll try to position themselves as one of the lads and I hate that I hate that lack of of sisterhood but I understand where it comes from because the system makes it very difficult for women to succeed. And then when they do succeed, it makes it very, very difficult as well for them to support other women. I don't like it, but I do understand it. That's something which is really great. It's a book about understanding the issues, raising awareness. I haven't given away the title yet, but it would be great for you to share the title of the book. And how come you chose it? Why Men Win at Work. I love the title. Um, and I had a lot of titles in my mind. I'd written the book in my head long before I wrote the book. And it was something I very much had to get out. I had most of the chapters. I knew how it was going to work. And I had a few ideas for the title. And then that title came to me. I don't know how it came to me. It came to me as these things do. And the second I thought of that title. I knew that that had to be the title of the book. So it wasn't really a choice for me. It was a real non-negotiable. That will be the title of the book. What I like about it 
is I think it works on many levels. Firstly, people say it's quite a controversial title. It isn't really, is it? The reality is men do win at work, right? They, they do. You look at the data, they, they get most of the, the good jobs, most of the promotions, most of the money. So it's not that controversial a statement, actually. I like the fact that men are in the title because it's extremely important to me that men read this book and feel included in this book and feel understood by this book and don't feel attacked by this book. I know that a lot of men like the title because it's about men winning. I actually think that's quite interesting. But also, I think there's a perception that makes people think it's controversial, that it's going to be a bit a bit of a bitter, a bitter attack on, you know, a cynical why men win at work roll our eyes. And it isn't at all that, as you know, it's very much an exploration of why does this happen? We know that women are equally intelligent. We know they're equally competent, that their leadership abilities are at least as strong based on all of the analysis. In many, many companies and organizations, women come in at, at least 50% of the work population. So why does this happen? Where do they go? As you move up the pyramid, where do all the women go? And it really is an exploration of that. And it's a very calm and rational and non-emotional exploration of why does that happen? What are all of those psychological, beneath the surface, invisible, unconscious things that even good, decent, well-intended men are contributing too, and women are contributing to as well. So for me, it's just, it sums up exactly what the book is and does. And if people are a little spiked by it, then I think that's, that's a good thing as long as I could persuade them still to read it. Well, I can only recommend that people do read it. What are some of the things that stand out for you from the research that you've done into why this happens, why we have gender inequality further up an organisation that we go? I mean, there are so many reasons, obviously, and I think that's why this is such a difficult issue to address. You know, it's people have tried, people are trying to address this. There are an, an enormous number of dynamics that are happening and combining I think a couple really stand out to me the, the first is what I call the invisible power of culture um, I think that's so important and I, I think what's interesting about culture is is it's so intangible and particularly if you're part of a culture you don't see it you don't smell it and it's the goldfish, you know, you ask the goldfish, how's the water in the bowl? And the goldfish says, what water? But you put something in there that's not a goldfish and they're very aware of the water. So the whole culture and, and how if you are in a culture that is dominated by a group and you are not part of that group, it is actually not possible for you to perform at your peak for you to bring everything that you have because you're not relaxed, you're not confident, you're not comfortable. Um, it's so human to try to fit in rather than to be yourself. And you know, people, I'm a huge fan of the Strengths Finder methodology, as you know, people perform at their brilliant best when they bring themselves and they leverage their own strengths and they 
don't try to do what other people do. They do themselves. But a dominant culture strangles that. So I think all of these things, they're happening in a culture. They're happening to the minority groups without the minority groups are necessarily understanding that it's happening to them. And the dominant groups are doing these things without realizing that they're doing them. So it's incredibly hard to intervene. You asked me a question earlier that I don't think I properly answered when I was talking about the women's hour. You know, what did I do? I tried for a while to change the culture that I was in. And what I realized is it is I'm going to say impossible to change a culture that you, when you're not in the dominant group of that culture, because you are you are the minority, you are the issue. Um, only the dominant group can change its own, own culture, and it has to decide to do that. And I I do believe that um, if the dominant group isn't doing that, and you know a woman or anyone finds themselves in a culture where they can feel inside them, I cannot be myself here. I cannot bring my strengths here. My strengths are not leveraged and valued here. There comes a point where that person has to actually say, I need to go out and find a culture where I can do those things. So I think culture is a massive, massive driver of this problem and such a difficult one because it's not usually conscious and it's not usually malicious. In some ways, you know, when people intend to do harm, it's easier to address. Well-intended damage is very, very difficult. Yeah, you're talking about the invisibility of the culture, the insidious, unconscious nature of gender bias, I think. Yeah. And our not realising that we are part of that. You and I, we've been in a, a culture where we felt very comfortable and it's extremely comfortable and it's smooth for you and you don't necessarily want to change that. So extremely, extremely difficult. And I think, you know, the problem with um, all of these things is, as said, the person, the people who are most benefiting from it and most comfortable have to decide that they want to change it and then to know how to change it. It's an extremely big ask, but a very important one. And that's what your book is all about, I think, is asking all of us. And something I often talk about is leadership being about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it's being willing to be uncomfortable and to to understand more deeply the impact on everybody of gender bias if we're going to create cultures where there's gender equality. Absolutely. You're so right. Really, what a great leader should be doing every day is noticing their comfort levels. And actually, an alarm bell should be going off when they feel comfortable, when they look around them and they see a lot of people who look the same, a lot of people who are agreeing with each other, a lot of people who are agreeing with them. A great leader should be going, there's a problem here because this shouldn't happen. When we are trying to discuss problems and opportunities, what we should be having is difference and diversity and different thoughts and discomfort. And things that make me make me go, oh, 
I haven't, we haven't really got time to discuss that now, but we must. That's what a great leader should be doing. And I, I think too few are doing that. And, you know, to come back to the, the culture point, you know, your question about what really is causing this. I said there are, there are hundreds of things combining, but fundamentally what is happening is that they combine in order in a, in a way that makes us conclude, not just men conclude, but all of us conclude that men are better. Men are performing better. Men are therefore better and therefore that the man is just the better person for that job or the better person for that promotion or the better person for that. She's very good, but he's just that little bit stronger. And actually, yeah, in 50% of cases, maybe he is. But in 50%, he isn't. But we believe that he is. And really what we're doing is we're, we're drawing a conclusion about somebody's ability when actually that's not what we're seeing. All we're seeing is really the level of their confidence and their comfort in an environment which is enabling them to project more strongly. So I had a fantastic example once of um amazing guy I used to work with. I love this guy. He was fantastic. I asked him once, he'd just chosen a, a, a man to be promoted. And he'd, you know, he said, I looked at all the candidates and I looked at many women and the man was just better. And that was when I knew that how deep set this issue is because the man wasn't better. But he, this really good man, had done all his due diligence and concluded that he was. And you just knew it was because the man, he, he, he was set up to perform in a way that the women were not. Looking to the future, Jill, what, what are your hopes for the future? I am hopeful. I am a fundamentally positive person. And I think we have to be, don't we? Especially, uh, especially right now. Um, my hope is that we get to true equality. From a gender point of view, that means 50-50. I mean, equality, I can't bear this nonsense about 30% targets. What is that? I find that actually quite offensive and sexist. We're not 30% of the population. We don't have 30% of the intelligence. So please don't target that we should have 30% of the of the leadership positions. I'm hopeful that, that we will get to true equality and that we will get there quickly with true progress. People talk about progress. I, I think our progress is pathetic, actually. I think we celebrate every woman who gets a CEO job or a prime minister position. We celebrate it as if it's equality. It's not. If you look at the numbers, it's absolutely not. There's still, women are still less than 10%. So I hope we really start to accelerate towards it now rather than this. I mean, I don't even think it's snail pace. I think it's actually stuck. And I have to say, this last year, there is one sense that it's made me hopeful. Um, and that is some of the role models that we are seeing. Whilst I resist celebration of women in these positions and record numbers of CEOs that are women when it's actually 7%. That irritates me. However, seeing women as role models in these positions, I think is so important and so helpful because it normalizes it. It, it, it is really important, I think, that we all, 
not just men, but girls and women and boys as well, just get used to seeing women leading as women, looking like women, talking like women, being like women, because over time, that's not what we've been fed. We've seen since birth everything we've ever seen, whether it's in politics or on TV or in film, we see men in these positions and we see women in the kitchen or with the kids or in the bedroom. And I think it it's so important to see it. And I think, you know, if you take, we obviously, you know, Kamala getting vice president, that is a breakthrough. It is a breakthrough. And, you know, please let everyone see her doing a great job. But as an aside, please, let's not expect her to be perfect because we don't expect men to be perfect in these roles. I think we've all got examples of male leaders this year who have, this last year, who haven't been perfect. Let's not expect to be perfect. Let's forgive her when she gets it wrong. But yes, let's see her doing that job and getting used to see her doing that job. But I think, you know, and I called her my, my woman of the year, you know, Jacinda Ardern. I, I think it's been phenomenal the way that everybody celebrates her leadership and her leadership style, not just women, but I think she's done something in the collective psyche. I think she's shifted something. I think everyone has just thought, oh, hold on. She doesn't look like leaders normally look, but she absolutely does look like a leader. And the more of that that we see, I think the more normal it will become and the easier it will become for us to choose women for these positions. And you see a lot of people out there posting, um, can we have a Jacinda, please? And my response is, hey, there are Jacindas everywhere. There are Jacindas everywhere in every country, in every business, in every organization. We just don't notice them and we don't choose them as our leaders. And we should. And I hope that that we will more in the future. I hope so too, Jill. What would be the three things that to all of us, women and men, we can be doing to encourage those Jacindas, some of us who are listening, to be those leaders, to dial up our strengths? What are the three things? So I've got one for women, one for managers. And one for men. I'm going to end with men because um, in many ways, they're the most important on this. Women, I think I've got so much to say to women. I, I'm really not somebody who dumps this issue on women. I don't think it's helpful. All this stuff about you need to be more this, do less that. No, this is a, a collective issue and needs a collective solution. But I do think there are some things women can do better and just be a little bit more savvy about. And, you know, I talk about the umbrella theory and I would love all the women in the world who have careers or aspire to have careers to be very conscious of the umbrella theory. And by the umbrella theory, I mean that when we are working, whether it's at home or in the office, as far as our bosses are concerned, we're under umbrellas. We're working under umbrellas. All they see is the tops of umbrellas and assume people are working underneath. And so if we never lift aside our umbrella and invite people to see what we are doing and why it's important and what we're contributing, 
all they're going to see is the top of the umbrella. And I think men understand the umbrella theory a lot better than women. And I think that's why they give a lot more time to networking and spending time with their bosses. Because I don't know a man who believes in the myth of meritocracy, but I think the world is full of women who do. And, and so many women over the years have told me, Jill, my work should speak for itself. I just should do the work and that should be enough. And it, it's just men find that laughable. So just being aware that it's not just about doing fantastic work. Your work needs to be visible and you need to be visible. Because if you're not, you're going to be really, really frustrated that people who are doing lesser work than you are getting more in return. So the biggest thing for women would see would be umbrella theory. Remember it every day. Remember to lift your umbrella aside at least once a day. I would say to managers, you know, every day, every meeting, whether it's a virtual one or a real one, look around you. Have a look before you start. Have a look around. Do you see a dominant culture? Do you see a dominant group? Does everybody look the same? Does everybody sound the same? Just be aware. And if they do, get that, train that alarm to ring and say, I have a problem. I have a dominant group. I have a dominant culture. I need to fix that. I need to, this minute, this hour, this day, I need to start working on making this group more diverse. Not because it's a charity, but because my team will be stronger if I do. And my results will be stronger if I do, because they will, because this non-diverse group, no criticism to any of the individuals, but they have to be missing information that we would have and we would be able to make better decisions with if we had a more diverse group. I mean, you know, last year, how many examples of leadership groups in the UK dominated by men? very few or no women present making decisions which impacted the lives of families and mothers and women. Decisions that simply would not have been made if they had just noticed that they didn't have women in that room and they needed them because, you know what, a man cannot represent a woman and so many men think they can represent a woman because their wife told them that she liked something or didn't like something. No, I think it's very arrogant of any one of us to believe that we can represent anybody else. So managers, please look around you. If you, if you have a dominant group, work on it urgently. And the third one would be to men. It would be, please read my book, not because I want you to read my book per se, but because I can't express in 20, 25 minutes of talking what I can express in the book. And I, and I have written the book to hold your hand and show you why this is a huge issue that you should really care about because the world would be a much better place for everyone, but also for you if you did, and if you contribute to changing it. So read it, become a feminist, as I say, become one of my feminists. I've got lots out there. They're amazing. Embrace the cause and embrace it 
not as a charity, but as business. Embrace it as something that will be good for your life and good for your business. And embrace that equal is better. Um, diverse is better. Equal is better. And I think once you embrace that, it becomes easy because if you truly embrace it, then you go looking for the solutions. And the solutions are not easy. But if you believe in the mission, then we can really make it happen. Brilliant, Jill. Thank you. We can make it happen. We can make it happen together. Thank you so much for inspiring and for your rallying call. To find out more about Jill and to join her in her mission to drive gender equality out, go to her website, jillwittycollins.com, and do follow her on LinkedIn, where she's a regular contributor of and sharer of great posts. Thank you for listening to Leaders in Conversation podcast. Please do share the Leaders in Conversation podcast with other leaders to help them be at their best and to grow their strengths. For more inspirational stories, browse the full series on Spotify, iTunes, Buzzsprout, or on my own website, anytownend.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much.